0: I can do things at WED without asking anybody, even my Cody wife. Ronnie
1: Island, world's biggest barrel of and fun. And anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, me. we've done that now, Mark. we we'll get the old show now Hurry, hurry,
0: hurry. If anything's possible at Disneyland.
1: Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just set sail on a journey of discovery and discussion with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and rolling on the river with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and chief creative officer of Storyland Studios, Mel McGowan. Where are we headed today, Mel?
2: Well, Freddie, today you won't need your lap bar on this adventure. We're heading into the world of high-impact edutainment with two of America's great museum exhibit designers and art directors. First, we've got John Kelton and then John Taylor with us today, and they're going to help us navigate the waters of interactive and experienced learning.
1: I can't wait to get this thing started, so, folks, keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Well, Mel, uh, as a kid, I grew up loving to go to museums. Um, I have a favorite, and I'm guessing that since you spent a lot of time as a kid here in Southern California, you might have the similar one. But uh, I'm going to claim this as my favorite before you get to is the Natural History Museum over uh, by uh, Olympic Park there in Los Angeles. That's a big favorite of mine, especially the... The large mammals' hallways where you see the the giant uh, elephants on one end and the lions on the other end and each one of those peep-ins is just such a fantastic thing. Do you have any uh, favorite uh, museum exhibits that you experienced as a kid or growing up? <laughs>
2: Well, that is a, definitely a classic uh, for us uh, here in LA. And they've done a great job uh, with the multi-phase renovation there. But I actually grew up in Europe and Germany. And uh, my first uh, field trip that I ever recall was actually kind of a big deal. We actually took a Pretty good long train ride, and um, boy, I don't even remember the name of the museum. It's kind of embarrassing, but uh, <laughs> it was to visit the King Tut uh, oh, yeah, exhibit yeah. Uh, in sixth grade, and um, you know, just talk about uh, a journey to uh, uh, a land far, far away, and uh, just immersion, and and uh, just yeah, pretty visceral um, memories that still uh, have have stuck with me. We we prepared for that um, again. Our, we, just a great teacher that had us. Uh, do uh, the first physical models that I ever had a chance to to build of, uh, of uh, so you know we had kind of been in that headspace before we actually got to the to the exhibit and um, and really kind of made it even more enriching and memorable
1: yeah that's cool one, uh, one that came to mind today and I was actually looking trying to look it up um, try and find out where it was. I want to say it was in Fullerton, um, and I don't think it was the Bowers Museum. But there was a kids' museum in Fullerton that had a. Um, it was really a simple museum. Like there were crafts and things. It was it was pretty pretty low key. But they had a. Uh, beehive that was in glass that en- came into the room so that you would walk into this wall of beehive and the bees could get in and out from the side. But you could see the inner workings of a beehive right then, in- right there in front of you. What I loved the most about it was the education part was they had painted a white dot on the queen. And part of the goal of the museum directors was to have you you know, think through this colony and what they're really trying to do. And when you could find the queen, you could get some, some answers to that. And I always resonated with that um, thought that they didn't just show us bees. They helped us understand what the bees were doing by giving us points of reference and things like that. Um, no, that uh, that one just came to mind as uh, just sort of standing out. Something simple yet something powerful.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Those those little tidbits and takeaways is what it's all about. <laughs> so um, I w- I was wondering about uh, that when people create a museum experience uh, when uh, the museum comes uh, to you or other uh, designers and says, "Hey, look." We need to create something that's going to impact the the students, the adults, the kids, everybody who's coming to our museum. We don't want them to just walk away uh, having seen some dusty th- uh, things in a in a case. We want them to come away understanding living history or natural history. Uh, all those all those elements. Um, what is the difference with the way you might approach a museum space versus like? You typically do like theme parks or um, attractions or like an R D E space. How, how do you? How is it different?
2: You know, um, you know the, the fundamentals. I, I'd say are still the same. You know, of, of really dialing in the character, setting, and plot. Um, I think uh, you know, in many cases in uh, entertainment or attraction design, um, a lot of the focus is spent on thinking through what's the emotional journey. What's that emotional? Um, takeaway that you want people feeling uh, as they're kind of uh, going through this story arc and and walking away. I think um, quite often in um, museum exhibit design, there's there's, uh, certainly, uh, I hate to make it just sound like an intellectual uh, Takeaway, but because you know, there's definitely some some aspect of if if you can kind of stoke their curiosity, almost yeah, almost at a heart level, uh, that's definitely more likely. But I think there's definitely more substantial content, intellectual uh, morsels that we're definitely hoping to impart and, and have people carry with them. Uh, that is certainly something that is part of the the core common mission. Uh, of a lot of our content uh, curators that we get to work with.
1: Yeah, I you know I was kind of thinking like uh, internet or internet uh, uh, IP uh, intellectual properties, right? They have if you're going to deal with say Scooby Doo or something like that, you have to know all of the mythos around the Scooby Doo, and you want to keep whatever attraction that you're going to build around Scooby Doo and keep it within that story. But when we're talking about something like say uh, the ancient Egyptians, right? There's a wealth of knowledge there that needs to be imparted to people and so you you have those same sort of barriers that you would with an intellectual property but with the information that the museum is trying to uh share with its visitors pretty cool stuff it is you know and i actually just shared on social media um an exhibit
2: uh, that we worked on with uh, star wars uh for example as a, a gateway you know has done uh with the Boston Museum of Science and Industry, and and really the focus of the exhibit was, really where science and imagination kind of intersect, and mm-hmm. and using that great uh, IP of Star Wars was really kind of as Marty Sklar talks about in Mickey's Ten Commandments was just that, you know, little bit of a treat uh, to then layer in that the the layers of treatment, uh, and really just to kind of stoke that initial curiosity and make people want to go deeper and and dig into the to the the
1: nuts and bolts and the meat and potatoes. That's great. Well, Our guests today have a lot, uh, they've thought a lot about how to tell stories in museum context, and uh, they've got the battle scars to prove it. Uh, We'll get into that a little bit. They're veteran museum exhibit designers. And they've led creative projects that both educate and entertain. They're also buddies in real life, so that means they're a lot of fun to hang out with. So let's grab our museum tickets, find the docent for our interview with John Kelton and John Taylor. Let's go. Well, uh, John Taylor and John Kelton, it is great to have you guys uh, here on Skype with us. Um, Two of our
2: favorite clients. (laughs)
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, These guys uh, work together on an incredible museum project in Alabama called the Cook Museum, and we're just excited to have you guys on.
2: By the way, congrats on uh, not only getting her done, uh, getting her open. You don't open a a completely new... uh, museum, much less a new concept in museums every day, but also some of the recognition like USA Today Travel nominating you for one of the top 10 anticipated museum openings. Uh, Some pretty good company with Academy of Motion Pictures in LA, the Grand Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and uh, the Bauhaus Museum, one of my favorites. Uh, (laughs) Not only the band, but the movement, the architectural movement. Um, So that's some pretty good company, man, congrats
3: yeah thank you. When um, that list came out I think in uh, early 2019, a few months before we opened, and it suddenly got real. you know when you <laughs> see your name uh, in that kind of company, it's like wow, people are really they're watching us and they're they're expecting great things and it was it was um, an amazing day to cut the ribbon uh, June 7th of 2019 on this new museum here. Well, John, you've had that experience uh, multiple
1: times and um, sort of starting from napkin sketches uh, uh, on with a museum idea and then going all the way through the whole process from beginning to opening day. Um, tell us a little bit
3: about that. Uh, so in my career, I've had the good fortune of uh, opening four museums from scratch um, where someone says, hey, let's build a museum. And you take that through the entire design process, uh, design, uh, planning design, construction, installation, and uh, cutting the ribbon. And um, so the Cook Museum was not my first rodeo, so to speak. (laughs) But uh, uh, definitely the most challenging because we developed – John Taylor and I developed 14 exhibit spaces, each with a different – design aesthetic, but they all tell one, uh, one story if you're paying attention. Um, so yeah, it was a lot. And we have live animals in almost every exhibit space. Oh, really? So, so in addition to the 62,000 square foot, uh, facility, about 23,000 square feet of that is, is, uh, exhibit space. We have a 10,000 square foot, um, quarantine facility down the street where we take care of our live animals before they come in into the main building. Wow. So,
2: And tell, um, me, tell me about your process of honing in, you know, on, on kind of that storyline, big idea and, you know, kind of, you know, with the, the, I think of them as client, but whoever's actually writing the check, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of just getting that consensus of, you know, the, the unique direction and take uh, as opposed to just being, uh, you know, another regional natural history museum.
3: Sure. Um, so really, the, the uh, let me back up just a little bit and tell you about the origins of the, the Cook Museum. It came out of, believe it or not, a pest control company here in the Southeast um, where um, they would collect insect specimens and then to train their technicians
1: mm-hmm.
3: with their uh, insect collection, which became a uh, oversized papier-mâché bug collection. And then the technicians would bring in these cool finds from the field, like, look at this chair that's been destroyed by termites, you know? (laughs) Um, uh, And then people wanted to see this collection of oddities. This is how a lot of museums actually start. You know, you have this small collection and people want to come see the stuff. So they set aside a small a corner of their warehouse. They did like 20,000 people in a year on the weekends. And then in 1980, they opened a 5,000 square foot, um, very small museum um, to serve the public. It was free at that time. And then um, had great, great presence here in North Alabama. Um, Then about 10 years ago, John Cook Sr. passed away And the family came together and decided the best way to honor his legacy is to build a new museum for a new century. So that's where John Taylor got involved.
1: (laughs) Hello, John Taylor.
0: (laughs) Okay, so the the Cook family approached uh, Patrick Marsh, which was my mentor. He was um, the art director for Jaws and King Kong for Universal Studios and uh, was the art director for the 1984 Olympics and spent 11 years with Japan Universal. Um, he, he and I and uh, a coworker that I work with, my partner in crime, we, we do everything together. Um, Kristen Anderson, she's a phenomenal a designer, we we got approached by the Cook family to actually come up with this concept for the museum. And actually, it was Patrick Marsh that came up with the idea of life is amazing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it, it just stuck. It stuck with everybody. It resonated, um, and, and the idea that the Cooks were so passionate about is explaining how biomes, all the different biomes in the world, and how they're all very similar and interconnected, and, and really look look at life from looking deeper into it and the, lo- the closer you look, the more amazed you are. And so that was our, our starting point and we developed a full 3D model of the space. We presented it to them and at that point, uh, I was, Patrick and I and Kristen were on another project and we were getting, we were really ramping up on that project and, and the family uh, was debating what to do with the facility because the facility that they had had at that point was uh, not conducive to long-term. Uh, it doesn't be a lot of long-term issues with it. So they decided to, to, to demolish that building and start from scratch. And at that point, we segued out of that project to go work on our project with the understanding that we might come back into it. And that's, mm-hmm, where, right. that's kind of where I exited the, the scene and John Kelton uh, came on the scene and took it from
3: there. Right, so I stepped in as a consultant. So I had been um, doing freelance work here in Alabama and I did freelance design work for, for 15 years supporting uh, museums here in this region. Um, and I was asked to, to just to come in and, and consult and then one day a week became two days a week, became three, became four. And then eventually it was uh, what would it look like if you were the director of exhibits and visitor experience? So you don't say no when someone is asking you to build a museum from scratch. <laughs> it doesn't happen every day. And I know people in the museum profession that have been in, the, in this profession for their entire career and they've never built a museum from, from scratch. Um, I've been fortunate to do it you know, uh, several times I guess I'm a glutton for punishment, but <laughs> it's uh, a <laughs> it's a very um, it's just a different animal. Yeah. And you know the average time, average length of time it takes to build a museum from here's the idea to cutting the ribbon uh, on average is but somewhere between seven to eight years to do that. Oh wow. Yeah, and the Cook Museum is was right on that time schedule. From the initial contact with John Taylor, uh, from the time that I got involved until we cut the ribbon, it was uh, about eight years.
1: That's uh, tremendous. I, You know, the idea of life is amazing is uh, uh, pretty much, I think, sort of the passionate start that everybody has for any kind of uh, museum uh, uh, enterprise. You you you're fascinated by something. You're fascinated by uh, e- Egyptian uh, history and the the culture. You're you're fascinated by zoology. You're fascinated by uh, gems and geology. And that is the passion that ends up opening up a museum. And so I think that's that's pretty mm-hmm. exciting. Mm-hmm. I know Mel Storyland got to be part of that uh, in creating some of those biomes. Um, with the story of amazing life that exists in really difficult places on the planet.
2: Well, I say for us, the, the, the passion point, you know, museums are a part of what we do, but yeah. we also have some shared history in the exhibit design world and mm. the attraction world. I mean, John, I know that you've spent some time with uh, brushes with Disney, both Magic Kingdom, Epcot, mm-hmm. New Tomorrowland. Um, I, I'm just curious at a high level, your thoughts on... Um, kind of again, what's what's new? You know, I mean, again, when we work with Museum of the Bible, Cook Museum, th- these are not dusty dead things uh, in a box. Oh no, you know, that's with right. The, with a static no. uh, a sign, this is not what a lot of people, including probably some of our listeners, uh, you know, in, envision when they think museum. What what would you like? I mean, what what do you think uh, is, is short version of you know? Again, even I, almost you almost don't wanna put the word museum in some of these titles. Yeah, that's right. There's a the level of credibility it brings, but then there's also this kind of uh, false expectation because yeah. these are absolutely experiential journeys, you know?
3: Oh, absolutely. But, you know, um, you might hear the word or the term edutainment thrown around a little bit, um, but um, um, I'm, I'm a believer that a spoonful of sugar really does help the medicine go down. So, um, if you're, if we're going to teach a topic to someone, it needs to be entertaining to, uh, to keep their attention. I think that's why I like Epcot so much because, uh, you're learning so much while you're there and you don't even know that it's happening around you. Um, so that's, that's the, the type of, um, interactivity and immersion I like to bring to, to my projects whenever possible. I'm sure Taylor would say the same thing.
0: Yeah, it, it, I feel that um, the idea it, – it's so amazing how, you know, words and thoughts, you know, for my, my passion I, – I, I started my career – in, you know, as an illustrator. So I illustrated for the toy industry. And so I've always got this idea of a story that's being told. And how do you connect that story with all the senses so that that guest mm-hmm. can walk away and 20 years later, it still is a place that they, they want to talk about a, hey, this experience or that, or whatever um, that, and and, and uh, along with that side of it is what I love about the industry is the people that that y- you can't build something like this by yourself. And so you're collaborating with so many talented people um, mm-hmm. and they all have different ways of looking at that same idea that you have. And but but they bring a different component to it. And somehow there's this aha moment through the whole experience that when it starts to really sink in and then you have something powerful and, and I love that, that whole journey, uh, you know, to that because if, if, if it takes that much work to get there, then hopefully that translates in a non verbal, maybe way to the guests and, and they leave with something amazing, um, mm-hmm. and impactful. So, but, but you're right. I think that you, you, we don't, you know, museums have changed, in in a way to where they have to entertain. Um, but in the entertainment side of things, you can really teach a lot. Um, you know, uh, from from that perspective, let me ask you You guys.
3: Oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, um, when I was uh, getting started as in this business, it was actually through trade show exhibits and, um, you know, Right out of school as a, uh, and I'm a, an Auburn University industrial designer uh, grad, but uh, right out of school, you, you're still in that studio studio mode, and not a lot of people are speaking into your design. You know, it's just whatever you kind of come up with. Yeah, You get right. the client's logo, you get the client's logo, you get their brochure, and you try to make something work for their for their trade show exhibit. The difference between that kind of work and what we do with museum work is there are a lot there. There are many more people at the table that are speaking into the process. Yeah. Okay. So you bring in a subject matter expert. Yeah. You bring in a writer uh, who will give the voice to that exhibit, and we we hired a writer who worked with us for three and a half years on this project to make sure that all of our You know, all the labels and everything have the same voice that just works for um, our audience. Um, You bring in your exhibit designer. If the graphic designer, if you can get him or her away from their computer for an hour and a half, you bring them into the meeting. Um, You want uh, maybe a stakeholder or two in that meeting. And everybody is contributing to this pool of meaning, right? And uh, but the exhibit designer's job is to take all of that information right and make sense of it and turn it into a th- three-dimensional expression of the storyline. Um and it's not even not Yeah <laughs> <laughs> because everybody has something to say at that table.
1: Yeah. Um Well, let let me ask you this. I'm curious about this. So um, I'm going to let you both tell your own story from creating uh, different museum exhibits along the way. But um, talk about a challenging uh, situation where the story that was needing to be told um, was really difficult to uh, sort of bridge from, hey, this is just plain educational to this is now something that's grabbing somebody's attention and they want to learn this because of the way it's now presented. Uh, I'm going to uh, put uh, Taylor on the spot first this time. You got any uh, um, war stories?
0: OK, so, um, well, I, <laughs> think we go. I, got, I think I've got two. Uh, I've got <laughs> one that that uh, the I, I've been it's interesting in my life. I've just been. I feel like I've just been kind of dragged along. And oh, I'm over here. Oh, I'm over here. And I'm in this environment. I'm over here in this other environment. And uh, and uh, I've had the privilege of being in, in more of a faith-based community um, for the past uh, probably 15 years. And so I had the privilege of working as the lead production designer for. Um, the Ark Encounter, which is basically we're taking biblical narratives and we're trying to you know, tell the, the biblical story in a very fun and creative and, and modern way, um, but try to stay true to just the biblical narrative. And and so there's a lot of challenges uh, with that, but that was a $150 million project. And, uh, so through that project, I, I, I was given the task to, to be responsible for all the big exhibits. So there were 13 major exhibits and, uh, and so there were challenges with each one of those exhibits, um, to, to pull that off in a very engaging way. and and I, i'm I'm one that I like to every exhibit to have its own experience, very unique. So when they cross the threshold from one exhibit to the next, they're immersed in something completely new. Hmm. Um, so uh, I just love that aspect, so it just isn't it just isn't the same mundane thing over and over again. Um, so that was the the arc encounter. I think the most challenging exhibit I've had, um, was I had the privilege in 2010 uh, I was approached to actually Patrick and I were both approached by this group called OM Ships Operation Mobilization and uh, they have this ship it's called Logos Hope and it's a 500 cruise ship, and it goes all around the world and it does humanitarian it, like it'll, it'll birth into a port it'll be there for three or four weeks uh, they go out they build homes they dig wells they, they get water uh, they do all kinds of cool things, um, and uh, and and this trip, this the ship travels everywhere into some of the, the the most impoverished nations, all the way to some of the richest ones. Um, and so they had, they approached Patrick and I, and they said, "Hey, we've got we want to have an experience. We want to have an attraction on deck four. It's a two thousand square foot field. Uh, I mean space." And uh, can you design something? And so the challenge was tell the story of God um, without ever really dealing with God, <laughs> because a lot of these countries you just can't they can't do that. And so um, that that was a challenge. And the second challenge was there's no words because there's so many different countries and languages that they didn't they didn't want to have to spend the money to to put new, every two or three weeks, change out the words of the, of the attraction. So
1: telling a story so without people, words, that's amazing.
0: Telling mm-hmm. a story without words, and it has to be a very important story because it deals with um, a, 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 you know, who God is. And so we wrestled, I wrestled, I, I mean, I, I had a lot of sleepless nights with how do I tell this story? And it just dawned on me one day, the story of a loving father um, and the story of the prodigal son and two sons. And so it, it, it culminated in, um, a 2000 square foot exhibit with 27 murals, 64 illustrations is the story of a father and two sons, one that runs and does his own thing. And one that stays, but really doesn't obey. Um, and, uh, and, and that story, has impacted I, I just got a report just the other day I just got an you know a, a, an email and it said thousands and thousands of people have been touched by that story and I could go into all kinds of like real life and death situations that have come out of that well it's a, um, it's a perfect narrative amazing. to
2: tell because you know unlike am I mean it's just so non- there's nothing divisive about it. It's just yeah. the idea of grace and mercy, you know, uh, above, above and beyond. Yeah. Just You get what yeah. you deserve, you know, yeah. like uh, karma, <laughs> you know, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's, it's just a powerful mm-hmm. idea uh, that really transcends uh, a
1: lot of different cultural barriers. As well. Yeah, that's super. It sounds like it really um, had an impact. Um, what, yeah, and
0: been oh, on the water for two. Ten years. It's been it's been on the water for ten years. And imagine a you know, John exhibits they deteriorate. This exhibit's been on the water for ten years in a boat that rocks back and forth, and it's still <laughs> it's still fancy. So anyhow, uh, those are those are the kind of challenges that we look at. But but yeah, that's the kind
1: o- of original my, arc only had the last forty time. days at sea. That's right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's not bad. Yeah.
1: Actually, yeah, what strikes please. me about that's funny about that is I, I remember hearing, you re, you guys remember there was this uh, uh, Russell Crowe movie about Noah's Ark, came out, I don't know, five oh, years, yeah. ten, year, ten oh, years Ridley, ago.
2: Ridley Scott?
1: Yeah. I, I listened to one of the guys who had talked about it. And, and so here's a challenge of taking biblical stuff and turning it into a story, is that he, they, they mentioned that in the story of Noah, the one that's in the Bible, Noah doesn't talk until after the flood and after all of this stuff and after the rainbow and all this stuff and they're like well, how do we write a script that so then they just made up all kinds of stuff for for noah to say beforehand <laughs> but anyway there's the challenge you got to tell a story from something that's so limited um and so hey Ke- uh, yes. kelton uh, share us your yep. uh, j- crazy challenge that you went from uh, i'm trying to educate but how do i do it in a way that really um transforms and excites
3: Oh, wow. Uh, Let me think about that. So in in, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, we have the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Yeah. And in uh, 2014, they were observing the 50th anniversary of the Children's March. And this is where um, school-age children were allowed to to um, march in the city, in the streets of Birmingham, attempting to um, deliver a petition to uh, Birmingham City Hall, and I'm sure your listenership has seen images of those kids being hosed down by yeah. the, uh, you know, the fire department and dogs and whatnot. Terrible situation. Um, so we, the the institute is right across the street from the 16th Avenue. Baptist Church Um, and as I was working with their curator to um, put this exhibit together um, we found the original sign of that church um, on the back porch of the church's parsonage and we was able to bring that sign into the uh, exhibit environment and hang it in such a way that you could you stood in one spot you could look out of a window and see the church across the street. And this is the church that was bombed in the fall of 1964. Mm. Uh, Very powerful moment. Um, Excuse me for a moment. Anyway, um, very powerful for our visitors to see that uh, moment. But as you wound your way through the exhibit, there's a – uh, to help tell the story, you have to understand the mindset of those kids that were marching. Yeah. They were not allowed to carry any weapons in their pockets. Okay, they they were to be as innocent as sheep. So, no hammers, no chains, no knives, no guns, or anything were allowed. They were not allowed to take that out into the street as they left the church in groups of fifty to march. And um, so we had a simple tray, a silver platter on a crochet doily, on a, on a simple wooden table. Um, and it was like, check your pockets. before you turn this corner, you have to be innocent. Right. And then you turn the corner and that's where we hit them with the imagery of what everyone has seen. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, very powerful moment. Um, I don't know if that's answering your question, but it's no. it's really that was a really a hard topic to deal with. And how do you pull that emotion out of someone um, within a confined space? You know?
1: Yeah, that strikes me as um, I mean, I could tell you're getting emotional there just thinking about it. Um, I have the same experience, you know, having gone to the Holocaust Museum. You know, they, they set you up for these turns right. in, a, in a museum to, hey, you're about to encounter the truth about this situation, and and to use something yes. that seems as innocuous yep. as emptying your pockets, as um, as a turning point in this narrative, is really uh, that that meets the challenge, and and if it's striking people's hearts as you're you're saying, I think that must be very very effective. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, every project you work on teaches you something <laughs> that you can apply to the next project, so. Um, in that project, I learned a lot about sight lines and trying to set up the big reveal yeah so when we were working on uh, the the floor plan for the Cook Museum, which is a linear progression uh, floor plan, we played around a lot with our sight lines and I uh, John Taylor and I we we ag- there's one set there's one scene where he and I agonized for months over the rock work of our of our cave. And we have an overlook, uh, of a mountain and, uh, the placement of a setting sun in a mural. And we agonized over that for months (laughs) to make sure everything was just right. Um, and as you walk into our oceans exhibit, there's a reveal there to the tank, the 15,000 gallon saltwater aquarium. And even after the steel studs were up for, for the walls, we decided, you know, we need to extend that wall over another four feet, <laughs> so we get a better reveal. Which means a change order, right? Uh, costs more,
1: <laughs>
3: but the but the effect that it has on our our visitors, especially our youngest visitors, is 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 worth it. Yeah. The first kid who's in in line of a school group, that first kid when they come around that corner, they go, wow. You know, it's just awesome. How do you tell a story when people listen
1: with more than their ears? Stories change lives. They make us remember, but only when they're felt and not just heard. Storyland Studios builds the impossible. We turn big ideas into reality. We tell stories in three dimensions to stir the senses so you can walk into places you've only seen in your dreams, in real life and real time. Storyland's artists, architects, and artisans take stories out of the imagination and build tangible dreams that leave lasting impressions and memories that endure for years. What's your story? Storyland Studios is themed entertainment, destination design, production, and fabrication. Connect with the team at Storyland Studios to get started building your impossible dream today. Visit storylandstudios.com or call now. 800-218-1932. 800-218-1932. That's 800-218-1932. Storyland Studios, your big idea's best ally.
2: Well, I mean, you're, I think you're already answering a question that I was wanting to ask, which was really, um, you know, again, having that background in non-museum design. I mean, coming out of... Um, uh, whatever background people bring, whether it's film, whether it's theme parks, um, just immersive uh, I don't know how to, you know just it's it's so different again from that traditional idea of walking through uh, a turn of the century, you know uh, night at the museum type thing, you yeah. know seeing a bunch of stuff kind of out in this open. Uh, you know, Victorian exhibit hall or something. Yeah. Um, you know, what what are some other ways that you've seen, uh, kind of your background, your influence coming uh, out of uh, kind of more again themed attraction or immersive immersive uh, kind of design, uh, kind of impact uh, your your work uh, both at Cook and and kind of the projects you're working on currently.
3: Right. So. Um I, You know, in high school, I was the kid that was uh, designing and building the, home, the homecoming float. <laughs> and That's an important and, responsibility. Uh, very important. Um, the other guys were trying to date rods. the homecoming
2: queen. But yeah. That's that's
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, my dad built uh, street rods as a hobby. And I'll never forget the summer of Star Wars, A New Hope, 1977. We rode from Birmingham, Alabama to Yellowstone National Park and and back in a 1929 Ford A model. But it had a Chevy V8 engine and a Corvette rear end and a a Mustang uh, front suspension. It was painted candy apple red, and this car could do 100 miles an hour. But phenomenal experience because not only were we in this car that my dad had built with his own two hands, but we also visited all these museums and cultural institutions along the way and all these national parks. Um, it really opened my eyes to a much broader world. And, um, but this idea that you can, uh, uh, you can take a look and at, a, you know, building a street rod, you can take a chassis from an old car, um, get an engine from another car you can put all these parts together and um with your own two hands and then one day you can crank it and you can drive it somewhere and um museums um are much the same way where you take you have maybe your facility that you're working in uh you add a good story which is the engine you take uh first first um person uh, sorry prime source material like a first-person quote some video some lighting effects you put it all together you crank it you can drive it hmm. um, but that that background led me to architecture school at Auburn and then I transferred to industrial design and I was very fortunate to have an internship uh, with a company here in North Alabama um, called Intergraph, and I was assigned to their industrial design team and within that group i was assigned to the exhibit design group and that's where i learned about exhibits um and i learned that i enjoyed exhibits much more than worrying about injection molds for plastic parts um (laughs) um, from there i um was hired in fort wayne indiana uh to design and build trade show exhibits great training for basic cabinetry work and how to build an exhibit in a modular way that it can break down and go into shipping crates and go into a truck and go across the country for a quick setup. Um, But a headhunter called and asked if I would like to move to or interview for a job in Orlando, Florida. And this was right after a very cold and and bitter winter in Fort Wayne. And I said, Yes, I would love to <laughs> interview for a job in Orlando, Florida. And, and, and in Orlando I, Yeah. In Orlando I worked for Presentation South, uh, sometimes called PSI and the two owners of that company, Robert Buck and Robert McGarry were um, business partners from before um, the Magic Kingdom was announced actually. They had been in that uh, market for a long long time and we did trade show work and uh, but we also did children's museums and history museums and we did a lot of work in the theme parks um, primarily Epcot Center which was a Epcot in inventions which in the mid 90s um, was you know in a way it was like a permanent trade show exhibit okay?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, is essentially, you know, they're trade show exhibits, but they're they're within the Epcot walls, and so they are sort of a living, um, living museum um, experience, right? Uh, you're you're right, supposed right. to so see this as are, more than an exhibit,
3: right? Right. These companies are introducing bleeding edge technology, and um, we were able to build the exhibits for Apple, Motorola, Honeywell discover magazine um and eventually i was i was able to um to design the time warner cable exhibit and um with and got you know imagineering's blessing uh on the design and we and we built it and installed it and we also maintained um at&t's exhibit there at interventions as well as the at&t uh, VIP suite when they sponsored spaceship earth
1: yeah 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 that's a, a pretty special place to wow. be involved in yeah uh, yeah that's that's super cool
3: I have lots of war stories from uh, Epcot interventions but uh, one thing that that really uh, sticks out in my mind is that families were taking photo their family photographs in front of exhibits that I had been a part of <laughs> And that, that really changed my thinking about what exhibits could be. That's okay? right. And, and I'm not trying to knock trade shows, but for me personally, a trade show exhibit doesn't have a lot of transcendence to it. You know, you're, you're pushing a product, and I get that. Um, but um, exhibit work for a themed attraction or a museum, it's just, you know, families connect there yeah right if you can if you can design a backdrop and a safe environment where a family can make a connection and make a memory you've done something really good
2: Yeah, i think of a trade show as almost like a first handshake or a first kiss at best and uh the theme park experience is more the honeymoon yeah. and uh it's it's right. it is a different level of uh of uh kind of memory and meaning
1: yeah, I, you know, that's, that's what the magic of that 1964 World's Fair was, is that for the first time, you know, um, uh, the trade industry with Ford and Pepsi-Cola were now suddenly married with uh, a creative who could take their ideas and not just say, hey, this is mm-hmm. the best new uh, vehicle on the market, but this is the best new vehicle to e- explore and enjoy life in. and uh, that's the the marriage of that creative and that that story uh, the product, um, which uh, Interventions I think was um, that that big uh, beginning place for.
3: Well, let me tell you this quick story about AT&T AT and T at Interventions. So, I arrived in Orlando in the summer, um, fall of '94, and not long after that, we were asked to tear out almost all of the um, AT&T exhibits there and, and it, in its place put in long countertops and PC workstations um, because AT&T was rolling out AT&T WorldNet and they were handing out AT&T WorldNet CDs to er- anyone that came by the, their pavilion they were handing out about 5,000 CDs a day I think I still have some of those at the bottom of my drawer, and, my junk and drawer. Just think about the distribution <laughs> on this. You know, the world, the world is coming to EPCOT Interventions, okay, and they're able to get their product out in the hands of the consumer through that uh, interaction. But they would walk you through setting up a, um, a an account, and you could send. And electronic mail.
1: Ooh. You
3: might even call it email for short. <laughs> you could send your That's first tremendous. email. Yeah. From Epcot interventions
1: And and, and how uh, many years anyway, ago was this?
3: It just me. what's that? How many years ago
1: was that? That's it's so amazing this how fast.
3: 90, 95, 96. Yeah. Um it just written again as a young designer in my 20s it just showed me that there's exhibits can be powerful yeah that's right and different
1: right
0: can i can i weigh in on this just for sure please a couple seconds uh one of the philosophies that patrick had with our team patrick marsh was he would uh he would take our entire team to, to different sites and um like, our team went to Morocco, I couldn't make that trip, because there was something coming up, but they, we'd go to Morocco, we'd go all over the place. So, probably the most impactful thing, and I and this is me being a young designer, um, coming right out of the toy industry, where I was illustrating for like Hasbro, Milton Bradley, and you know, Rescue Heroes, and Candyland, and all that, I was in that world of like, fun, fun, kid stuff you know to all of a sudden being now in a 3D environment so i was kind of new at this at that point um and and we went to the lincoln museum in springfield missouri i believe that's where it's at and uh probably one of the most impactful scenes i've ever seen is you're walking in and and, and there's just that reveal moment that that Kelton was mentioning uh, you walk into this this environment and there is uh, two slaves, a, a, a husband and a wife, and their kids, and they're being ripped apart from each other, and the kids are, are clinging to the mother, and, and, and just in one scene, the, the emotion of one scene and the power of one scene, and that's what – that's the only reason why we went mm-hmm. over there was to see that. So we took – oh, and there was another thing too. Uh, there was a Pepper's Ghost there. Uh, the Lincoln Library was a phenomenal *Pepper's Ghost*, uh, probably about a twenty million dollar production, um, that that was really really impactful because it dealt with the Civil War and, and just the, tells a really amazing story. Um, those two things, when I when we experience that, we're like, wow, there's so much power in just one moment, um, and how do you capture that one moment in a in a in a way that resonates for that can change generations. Um, and so that, that was my, that was my aha moment to the industry, um, coming out of a a very 2d, uh, world into a more 3d experiential world.
1: Yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. You're taking the story and bringing it into a place that you can walk into.
2: I've got to ask, uh, I know everyone in the room is, uh, I think, an Epcot fan, because in a lot of ways, that was kind of the marriage, really, of of kind of the museum world and the the theme park world, kind of a a forced marriage, I guess, but (laughs) um, that really kind of shifted some paradigms and and certainly caused some some healthy uh, crossover of uh, kind of the the industries, particularly from the design professions. Um, we, We were lucky enough to get to work on the... Uh, some aspects of the Epcot Experience Center and kind of giving people a a taste of the future of that park. Uh, But as, you know, if we were to be in the park today, um, we would see some construction walls. And maybe (laughs) sadly, we would see some of that uh, former interventions and community core area kind of under the knife here getting demoed. And uh, I think on the map, it looks like a beautiful green area. That's like the (laughs) The the most extreme version of "Go Away Green" I've ever seen, um, but uh, any thoughts on uh, kind of uh, the future of of that you know park that I think is a pretty special place to to all of us? Kind of almost a, a permanent version of that New York World's Fair that uh, probably has to take a necessary step into the future. future. But it's going to be, I think, quite a bit different from uh, kind of the, the the trade show of of old
3: totally understand the reason why uh, epcot interventions as i remember it is going away because a lot of the technology that was being promoted there has been achieved yeah right i mean at and was showing off a video phone in 1995 or 96 but they were 1500 dollars a set and you had to have two for it to work right you know, grandma needed one in her house and you have to have one at your
1: house. Yeah, that's right.
3: And here we are talking to each other through Skype today It's <laughs> exactly. a free service. Yeah. Um, so I understand why that uh, entire front of the park is being uh, reworked. Um, and I've seen that some more IP is being added to World Showcase. Um, I really... Love the world showcase. Um, my, and here is why it's very spe- special to me because uh, my grandparents, who uh, lived their entire life in West Alabama, grew up in the Great Depression. They had never traveled the world. Okay. Wow. But but in an afternoon, <laughs> I I was able to take them on a world tour. That is so cool. At the world yeah. showcase.
1: Yeah, that's right.
3: Right. And my grandfather, who was a farmer, um, was totally blown away by aquaponics at the land. And
1: <laughs> that is you know, that is so special. to Yeah, be able I do to, remember that. Yeah.
3: Hey, they, grow, how do they grow things without dirt? <laughs> you
2: know, in, in today's where you know day and age, where you know uh, obviously people are a lot more connected uh, virtually, or uh, you know just the accessibility of air travel. Um, it, it's easy to be jaded, you know, and to just, uh, you know, I, I have a couple of, uh, of these friends that kind of turn their nose up at, you know, Epcot and yeah. it's like, well, you know, it's, you know, whatever, Mickey Mouse, you know, it's <laughs> Disney's world. But I think that the idea of uh, not just um, kind of rubber stamping or cloning uh, the real world and bring kind of the fake version, but it's always kind of, I, I know one of the big ideas they're rolling with is this idea of, you um, continue to allow people to step into a place where the real world is made fantastic you yeah know? And, and the idea of what Walt did with Main Street USA to you know to each of the the countries you know uh, the art of imaginary and spatial storytelling of, of distilling that unique special sauce sense of place picking the you know, most recognizable uh, gathering places, uh, whether it's an Italian piazza, uh, whether it's a a German Platz, kind of the the quintessential community scenes, uh, uh, village squares in in, in these different places, uh, you know, using the editing, the shrinking, and and just basically making you feel like uh, you've kind of got somehow a, a nice little taste test sampling of uh, the the culture um, of kind of this this idealized re- reality, uh, you know, the World Showcase probably has always worked and probably always will well. work um, with or without <laughs> the level of IP uh, being added to it. Because I think the bones are so great. But in terms of the the future world section, again, that idea of letting people step into the future, step into a place where the magic of possibilities are are kind of waiting for you to kind of dig in and explore. Uh, you know, I, I love the the idea of um, being able to kind of green that up and make it more of this uh, organic, uh, kind of uh, almost going back to the original animal kingdom idea of this Genesis Garden uh, water, yeah. uh, of, you know, experience. Um, it just again that sense of discovery as opposed to that that hard urban 80s corporate um, kind of you know piazza plaza. I know the original intent there was almost mm-hmm. a, a modern interpretation of St. Peter's Square. You know this semicircular uh colonnade plaza but uh that just does not age well you know it 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 still feels like 80s irvine uh in in a lot of ways but um yeah personally can't wait to see uh what that look tastes and feels like once the construction walls come down Freddie, I just realized that this is probably one of the first times that we've had a chance to get a recent client on that, uh, that is allowed to talk about the creative aspect oh, of the project. Oh, that is true. You Usually
1: know? we're all under the NDAs, no talking yeah, talking. Yeah, and,
2: and again, to, be, uh, to bring on collaborators, creators, friends uh, you know, of a project that we've created together, I mean, it's just so special, and I can't thank you guys enough for, for joining us and allowing us to join you on the journey of bringing this thing into reality.
3: Yeah, um, let me interject here for just a moment and just talk about, um, I guess you could say the power of social media. (laughs) Uh, um, About a year ago, I got on Instagram and was poking around in there, and I found a well-known Disney Imagineer that I began to follow. And then someone named, with a handle of Visioneer, commented, and I thought, well, that's an interesting handle. So I click on that profile. I, huh, interesting. He works <laughs> for a company called Storyland Studios. What's that all about? So I click their website, read through all of their credentials and uh, work experience, and also read the biography of all of the, you know, the primary uh, owners and operators of the of Storyland Studios and Plain Joe Studios. And I wow. thought these guys are really cool. <laughs> I, would love, I would love to do a project with them one day, but not today because we have to get our museum open and I'm locked in with a prime contractor on our exhibit fabrication. So when it came time to, to build the Arctic desert exhibit, which has a whole, a very unique look with, that John Taylor was the um, lead designer on that project, john came up with this really great idea of these low poly fractal rocks that arctic animals and desert animals would sit on and you kind of have this yin yang look in the um, exhibit space and uh anyway our prime contractor um who phenomenal group they just didn't quite have the bandwidth to build the rocks so their owner came to me and he said, look, I've got an idea. There's a company in California that can mill all the rocks for us. And uh, I was like, really? California? So what's the name of this company? And he said, they're called Storyland Studios. And I almost <laughs> fell out of my chair that day.
1: That's crazy.
3: I was, I was like, that's awesome. So So john taylor did the um the balsa wood and foam core model and then he created this this the 3d model in sketchup and then that model got converted over to uh, maya 3d we created a 3d model in maya and then you guys milled the the rocks and i'm going to put that quotation marks rocks out of foam hard-coded it to our color specs and shipped it to decatur alabama and installed it uh, and it was just great
1: wow that is so, that is so cool um just just uh a, an honor to have been part of it and uh hey thanks for putting that tag on there there you go there goes a, a good plug for mel well you guys uh john taylor john kelton thank you for being on with us today and uh, we can't wait to uh, uh collaborate on some sort of project again in the future sound fun Sounds let's do it great.
0: Let's
1: do it. All right, guys. uh, uh, Talk to you soon.
0: Thank you.
3: Thank you.
1: Well, there is a real challenge with museum design that John and John both point out in this interview, and that's being faithful to the content while still giving visitors an experience that they're going to take home and that's going to impact them and help, and that they're going to remember forever. But you know, I I see in this industry like that we are continually that line is getting more and more blurry it used to be that a museum experience was just that in a museum experience and now it's very very experiential and um i'm seeing that be the challenge that guys like uh the two johns and you in your job tend to uh are facing they're clearing up that blurry line
2: well it used to be uh the joke was dead things in a dusty box, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, an over-reliance on, um, on text, uh, to, to basically, uh, provide the information that uh, was only able to be provided uh, there before the, the invention of the World Wide Web and, <laughs> uh, and Google. And now that uh, a lot of that deep diving uh, in terms of data and text and information really can be accessed uh, really you know almost anywhere all the time, at your fingertips, um, it, it really has helped uh, kind of advance the the blurring of the lines between uh, education, entertainment. Uh, that, uh, you know, I'd say that Disney really started with uh, Epcot, you know, and, and that was really such a, a new paradigm in, in the industry. Yeah, right. And, and um, the Imagineers that worked on that truly were endeavoring to, you know, get people to kind of Feel an itch and then want to scratch the itch of, uh, you know, bigger ideas and bigger subjects uh, rather than just selling more uh, IP-related products or whatever. They were definitely interested in in getting people thinking about uh, kind of uh, ecology and and urbanism and and all these uh, just – Big ideas shaping the world, and and uh, for us, uh, I think another layer of that uh, that these guys really touched on uh, was the idea of again moving beyond just um, uh, intellectual, you know, um, you know, kind of stimulation or uh, enlightenment. Uh, I almost think of it as like going past mind uh, and body, and actually getting into the level of mind, body, and spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that that idea of uh, tapping into you know kind of things that lift the spirit that uh, kind of whether it's just inspiring uh, whether it's just unifying uh, or inspirational for a moment uh, or whether it's things that really do kind of help uh, uh, people with uh, things like uh, spiritual formation and, and actually understanding kind of who and why they are um, and in our case we've uh, we're just coming off of a pretty hot and heavy uh, blue sky process for I think the fourth project we've done with Museum of the Bible, uh, and it's actually working with uh, some amazing um, scientific uh, history scholars uh, from around the world to, to actually uh, tear down the false dichotomy that exists in some people's minds, unfortunately too many Americans' minds, that uh, science and uh, the scriptures, for example, are uh, really should be uh, polar opposites, uh, when in fact, historically, they've, they've really um, had a very rich uh, relationship and and to be able to share that story uh, over the millennia has been a, a really powerful uh, thing that uh, we're starting off as kind of the next phase uh, exhibit. Uh, but then eventually uh, they plan on taking this show on the road. So coming soon to a, a
1: museum near you, hopefully uh, you'll be able to experience this exhibit. That's amazing. Yeah. And it really is true. We uh, The places and the, the people that we encounter and uh, especially those, those places where we're, we're given an opportunity to learn in a way that uh, just sparks our imagination, really does change the world, both uh, for people around us and inside of us. Well, gu- uh, guess what? I have seen Night at the Museum, and I want to get out of here. I'm imagining that these mummies and mastodons are going to come to life around us pretty soon. So what do you say we hit the road? Let's do it. All right. Until next time, folks. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. We want you to know it's a big deal to us that you've taken time to listen to our show. Would you do us one more favor and leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts? That's a great way to get the word out about the show so we can connect with many more creative people like you. Thank you. We also want to thank our guests, John Kelton and John Taylor. Dive into John Kelton's museum work at keltondesign.com, K-E-L-T-O-N-design.com, or find him on Instagram at keltondesign. Not to be confused, of course, with his son's Instagram, that's at kelton underscore design, but our listeners would know better than to give both of them a follow, wouldn't you? Dig into John Taylor's amazing exhibit work at johntaylorstudios.com, that's jon TaylorStudios.com. You can also get in touch with them both on LinkedIn. Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. Start your own profile, discuss the latest creative advancements, and interact with your fellow theme park designers around the world. Follow the action on Instagram and Twitter at themedattraction and join our active discussion group on LinkedIn. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at Skipper Freddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by the Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Barry is the author of Podcast Audio, a new book that helps you take your podcast production to the next level. Microphones, room acoustics, recording tricks, and polishing up the show file all combine to create world-class podcast audio you can be proud of. Buy it now on Amazon or at rivershorecreative.com. You know, Mel, Barry just had his kitchen redone. He asked for marble countertops, but they installed soapstone instead. I told him not to worry. Most folks will just take it for granted. Nobody really cares what kind it is, of course. I say, igneous is bliss. Last joke, I pumice. Did I plateau too soon? Thanks for listening, folks.